Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherbin, the show's producer, and today's host, for the very first time, is our new voice and behind-the-mic talent, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Our guest today is Lauren Perdot. Lauren is a recent graduate of Southern Connecticut State University with a BS in Environmental Systems and Sustainability Studies. She has worked in a wide range of research positions involving both coastal and marine life. Excited to continue working towards a healthier ocean, Lauren aims to continue studying and sharing about ocean restoration, conservation, and management. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. For season two of Blue Earth Podcast, we are mixing things up a bit. We will now feature a student interview each month to give our listeners insight into what our next generation of ocean stewards are doing today to protect our tomorrows. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Lauren Bradell. Hi, Lauren. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. Welcome to the show. One of the first things I usually like to ask people when I meet them, and especially you, since uh, I've gotten to know you, is what is it that influenced you to take this path in life? Sure. So I actually, when I started college, was undecided, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I've always loved the environment and the ocean, but I never really saw it as a career path. So when it came time to pick a major, um, the major that I chose, Environmental Systems and Sustainability Studies at Southern Connecticut State University and the Department of the Environment, Geography, and Marine Sciences, but was recently added. So I took the courses, I started taking classes as well as an honors course, which required a lot of field work. And through that, I really came to love research. So I started working in a lab with Dr. James Tate and on my own research project, as well as started numerous internships and volunteer experiences. So through these opportunities, I came to really enjoy the creativity that science allows you um, and that it offers. And it opens a lot of doors and different possibilities for you to push the boundaries of what we currently know and understand. That's right. And that's amazing. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned Dr. Tate, because I had the pleasure of meeting you when you were in the program and uh, you were studying, and uh, it was Dr. James Tate, who is with the Worth Center for Coastal and Marine Studies, that had introduced us. And you went out with him to do the, our Visiting Scholars Program. So that's a program that we have where our researchers go out into schools in Connecticut and talk about what they do. Lauren, you and Dr. Tate uh, had done research on hurricanes, the effects storms have on our beaches and their ecosystems. So do you mind talking a little bit about the uh, research experience that you have in that area? Because your talk was uh, fascinating for the students, and I'd love for people to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. So in recent times, hurricanes are becoming more intense. And as the water warms, they gain energy over warm water. Um, and so we're seeing more intense hurricanes. And a hurricane is typically classified as any sort of max wind speed that's 74 miles an hour. Um, and they're rated on a scale from one to five. So we're having these more active hurricane seasons, and this has a lot of implications for many different factors, including coastal development as well as beaches. And so beaches are what I studied in my undergraduate career. I did a two-year research project on Connecticut's largest coastal beach. This is Hammonasset Beach State Park. And beaches are typically sometimes considered a river of sand because the sediment moves so often. Mm. And so when we go to a beach, often we don't really see this or recognize it. We just go and maybe it looks the same as it was last time. Sometimes it looks different if there was a big storm. 
but the sand moves around so much on them that they're often considered a river of sand. Yeah. And this is in response to physical factors such as wind, waves, or any sort of currents. And so hurricanes have a lot of potential to move a lot of sand. <laughs> There's a big difference between an open coast location and an estuary location. So an estuary being something that's more enclosed. So on an open coast location, what happens is there's this equilibrium. And so if a big storm such as a hurricane moves through, it will move a lot of sediment off the beach. But then in the summertime, a certain type of wave called a fair weather wave that's a bit longer in its period will push that sediment back onto the beach. And so it rebuilds the beach to this, its robust size. And so there's this equilibrium that's defined. However, in an estuary, which is again a more enclosed location, we can still get these big storms such as a hurricane or nor'easter that take a lot of sediment from the beach, but those fair weather waves, that's a really long swell, um, are blocked out. And so we don't have the waves that push that sediment back onto the beach. And so these beaches are typically a relic of um, the past storm. And sometimes they do restore themselves a little bit, but typically it's not too how the beach was before. So it's not as robust as it was before the storm. How do you rebuild those estuaries, you know, when that happens? One way that they do this is through beach replenishment. There's a lot of different types of ways that people look to build the coastline to make it more resilient. Some of these are hard structures, so things like a seawall or a jetty. Um, there are issues associated with these. For example, a seawall will actually focus the wave energy at the base of the seawall. Um, and so what you have happen is actually the beach erodes quicker than it would without the seawall there. If you have a jetty, which is something that sticks perpendicular into the sea, this looks to trap the sediment that's moving along shore. So kind of thinking about if you were taking a walk along the beach and the sand is moving in that direction, a jetty would look to trap that sand and so it accretes or builds up against the jetty. However, this would then block it from the beach that's downstream of it. And so that beach would then be erosive. And so what beach replenishment looks to do is restore the beach a bit more as an ecosystem. So replenishment adds sand to the beach system. This is a bit more natural than something such as a hard structure. Um, however, there are still issues with it. For example, it can be really difficult to get it correct. Um, things such as sediment grain size, sediment color, all have impacts on how it is going to work when you actually put it out there. It also is dependent on what height you put it at. So the beach berm is typically kind of that longer part of the top of the beach that you would walk along or put your towel on. Um, that's called the berm of the beach. And when they do a replenishment project, they have to decide what height they want the beach at. If they put it too high, you can have what's called scarping. And so it kind of looks like there's a bit of a cliff on the beach. And if they put it too low, sometimes the water can overwash it and then you have water ponding behind the sediment fill. So replenishment is also quite expensive. Um, moving sand can be really, really pricey and one of the primary costs of an actual beach replenishment project. And so at Hammonasset Beach State Park, there was a $9 million beach replenishment project that was completed in 2017. And what the project that we were working on aimed to do was to study where the sediment was actually going from the beach replenishment project. And so we used total station surveys to track what was happening over an 18 month field study period. And what we were seeing was large shifts of the sediment moving offshore 
um, and we didn't see any of that sediment moving back onshore over the field study period. Um, this was a really great project to look at. It was at one of our most popular state beaches, um, and the fieldwork component was a great aspect of it. We were out there in the cold winter days, out in the water, um, as well as in the summer, which is quite beautiful. Um, there are always, of course, unforeseen challenges with fieldwork. Um, so total station surveys, what you do is you shoot a laser um, at a little prism reflector rod, and this could be just a few inches wide. So it's really small and you're aiming quite far away. So it can be anywhere, you know, around 700 meters that we're looking to hit this small reflector rod. And when we go, go out in the summer, sometimes there were so many beach umbrellas because it was so crowded, the beach, um, <laughs> that we had to come back later in the day. Um, but of course, having the beach as your field site, you can't complain about that. Um, and so you're setting the replenishment project and then looking towards what we can do for a more ecosystem-based restoration technique and how we can restore the beach as an ecosystem and thinking about um, the beach as a dynamic coastal environment with biological, physical, as well as chemical parameters on it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, that's something that people don't really think about when they go to the beach, like you said it usually, oh, it looks kind of like it did last year and not really thinking about, you know, storms or how it's been replenished and um, you bring up interest, interesting points as well as uh, like grain size, like the you know, sand grain size. And yeah, and I bet it's very expensive to move sand because of the weight and, you yes. know, getting vehicles to bring it in. So that's interesting. Um Thanks for that, Lauren. I, I I know when you were talking about it with the students that they were, you know, very interested uh, now, because you have a wide variety of topics that we could yeah. talk about, let's uh, swim into different waters, shall we? Um, you know what I find that no matter the age of the person, many people are fascinated by sharks. I mean, there's so many different types of sharks, but let's talk about two that you can find off the coast of New England. Uh, we have some sharks, such as the basking sharks, and these are the passive sharks, slow movers, right? So they don't really pose a danger to humans in general other than their like gigantic size and rough skin. So I believe that since 2004, at least 57 basking sharks have been tagged off the coast. And for our listeners, the basking shark is the second largest living shark after the whale shark. And it's a plankton-eating shark species. They weigh, though, about 11,000 pounds, and they live about 50 years. So basking sharks cross the equator and move as far south as Brazil when they leave New England. The other shark that I want you to talk about, um, one that some divers are very familiar with seeing and one that most people fear when they go into the water, is Cacaridon cacarius. Uh, well, that's a scientific name that means ragged tooth, but most people know it as the great white, right? Or yes. the white shark or white pointer as uh, yep. they're the largest predatory fish in the world, which I know. And it's a species of large mackerel shark that can be found pretty much in coastal surface waters all, you know, in all of the major oceans. And there's been sightings off the coast in recent years as there's a growing population of gray seals, right? So that kind of what brings them in. So uh, one program I know had tagged more than 120 individual white, white sharks off the eastern coast of Cape Cod since 2009. And in the fall, these sharks head down to the Gulf of Mexico and down the, uh, you know, southern United States, but they come back up to New England when the weather gets warmer. And the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy 
provide some of the funding to study this white shark movement. Um, and I know that there's one shark in particular, I think his name, they named him Cabot, who's been known to come into the Long Island Sound. And I know that you have experience working with the Conservancy as well. And mm -hmm. although people fear whites, they're really important to ocean health. So, Lauren, yes. if you don't mind, do you, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done uh, with uh, the white sharks and the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, there are over 500 different species of sharks out there. Yeah. Some are really big. Like you said, <laughs> yeah. the whale shark is the largest fish in the sea. Yep. Um, and as you mentioned, they filter feed. There are other ones that people are familiar with, such as the hammerhead, bull sharks, but there are also smaller ones that inhabit the deep sea and coastal um, ecosystems. And so a lot of people, when they think about what a shark is, are kind of curious as to what actually makes a shark a shark. Like, why is a great white shark a shark and a whale shark is a shark, but other fishes are not? Um, and so there are really six characteristics that actually make a shark a shark. And so the first one is that all sharks have multiple rows of teeth and they all have five to seven different gill slits. They have hard, rigid fins as well as a cartilage skeleton. So sharks have no bones in their body. They're all cartilage. And they also have something called a dermal denticle. And so this is kind of like their skin and it makes them more aerodynamic and, uh, excuse me, water dynamic. <laughs> they can swim better <laughs> and faster. And then they also have six senses. So they have electroreception as their sixth sense and they can detect electrical currents. And as you mentioned, all sharks are really important keystone species of our ocean ecosystem. And so if they're present, they indicate a really healthy and vibrant ocean ecosystem, and they help maintain a, a balance in the ocean. And so as you brought up, the shark that I've worked with, and that's probably one of the most popular sharks, is a great white shark. It's yeah, also called the white pointer or white shark. Mm -hmm. um, people refer to it as a great white shark because of its underside, its belly. Mm. Um, it is the largest predatory fish in the sea, as you said. When it's born, it's typically around three and a half to five feet. Wow. The females are a little bit bigger than the males. So the females are on average at full maturity around 15 feet, while the males can be about 12 feet at full maturity. However, they have been seen and grown to over 20 feet long. Um, they weigh anywhere from 1,500 to 4,000 pounds. And as we mentioned, all sharks have multiple rows of teeth. Great whites have five rows of teeth and they have over 300 teeth in their mouth at any given point. <laughs> they are opportunistic feeders. Um, so a lot of people think that they just eat seals and that's actually not true. They'll eat other things such as fish. Um, they actually don't start eating marine mammals until they're around 10 feet long. Before that 10 foot mark, they actually don't have the serrations on their teeth either, but around 10 feet is when those serrations will start to come in. And that's when they typically start to feed on marine mammals such as seals. They also don't actually have any taste buds in their tongue. It's all in their jaw. So if they want to taste something, they actually have to bite into it. And that is why if they're tasting something such as um, like a receiver or a, a boat or something, they have to bite into it to see that it's actually not food. White sharks are known to live anywhere from about 40 to 70 years, and they do have blue eyes, which is one of my favorite things to tell people. Yeah, that's interesting. They're not black like most people think. They're actually blue. Huh. And then they do have that counter shading, which is something that we use in the research to identify individual white sharks. And so if you've seen the photo, they're gray on top and white on the bottom. 
And this is called countershading, so it helps them blend into their environment. If you're looking at a white shark from above, it blends in with the darker seafloor. And if you're looking at it from underneath, it blends in with the lighter sky. And so that countershading really helps them blend in with their environment. As you mentioned, I did an internship with the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. This is a nonprofit organization. They're located in Chatham, Massachusetts. Um, and I was the science and research internship for summer of 2019. Um, I'll just put it out there that they do have their internship for summer of 2021 opening in January. <laughs> excellent, so if, excellent. Uh, yeah, if anyone's interested, <laughs> definitely check it out. It was an absolutely incredible experience. Um, sharks, as we know, especially great whites, are really slow growing. So they have few offspring and they're really late to mature. So they're threatened by things like bycatch and finning and trophy hunting. And their populations are really slow to recover. So it's important that we get more research on them. And people are really excited and eager to learn more about great white sharks. When I was in the fields, one of the best and most, I guess, asked questions that I would receive is, where can I see a shark? Um, people are really excited to actually see them and learn more about them. And so there's this large interest in the public, but there's also a large gap in our research and what we understand about them, especially on the East Coast of the United States. So Cape Cod only recently emerged as the, known, the only known location in the Northwest Atlantic where white sharks actually aggregate. And this is primarily in response to the local seal population. Um, the local seals came back after bounty hunting was banned in the state of Massachusetts in the 1960s, and then following the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972. As you mentioned, the Northwest Atlantic shark population, and these are the ones that aggregate in Cape Cod, but they're not actually Cape Cod white sharks. It's the Northwest population, and they move all the way from Florida up into Canada as their movement range. And so one thing that people do to study them is they tag the sharks. There are multiple different types of tags, but I'll just touch on three here. The first one being a PSAT tag, and this is called a pop-off satellite archival tag. And it collects information such as the temperature, the depth, and the light intensity. And scientists will program this tag to pop off after a set amount of time. So let's say it's a month or two months or whatever they set it to pop off of the shark after. They tag it, and then after that month or year, whatever it was set to, that tag actually pops off the shark and floats to the surface. And then we can get that data from the tag. The other tag is called a spot tag or a smart position and temperature tag. It's a satellite tag, and it actually gives us real-time data of the shark. So it sends real-time signals, but the dorsal fin, or that really popular back fin on the shark, actually has to break the surface of the water for us to get that data. And the last tag I'll touch on, which is the one that the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy typically tags their sharks with, is the acoustic tag. This is a sound-emitting device. And so the tag that's on the shark emits a unique sound. And if this tagged shark passes within around 300 meters of a receiver, the receiver will hear the tag, know what shark it is from the unique sound that the tag is emitting, and it does a timestamp of that tag. And so we can either offload these detections. Um, sometimes the receivers are real time and we can get that alert right away that the shark passed by. Other times they're not real time. And so you have to go and offload those detections. And this is one thing that I did with my internship over the summer was I worked with local harbor masters to offload the detections. 
It was really great to be out on the water working with local harbor masters. Um, I saw my first whale out there, which was very exciting. <laughs> um, but we learn a lot about their movement and what they're doing through these tags. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I had no idea that there were three different kinds. And when you actually talked about each of them, I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Because at first I was like, well, why would you want it to pop off? But yeah, it pops off and comes up to the surface. That way you can get it. Yeah. Instead of, instead of having to wait for the fin to come up and be above the water to capture the data. So that's interesting. And anybody listening to the podcast, you can track some of the sharks on apps like Sharktivity. Yes. I yeah. noticed that there were a couple different apps out there, uh, especially as we get into the warmer weather. If you want to know like, if there's a great white in the area, it's always interesting to see. Thank you for that, Lauren. I, I do have some other points that I wanted to touch on. So ocean health, as we know, is very important in the quality of the water in our oceans and fighting pollution threats. So I know that you've done work for Harbor Watch as mm -hmm. they work to improve water quality and ecosystem health in Connecticut. And I know they do a lot to address the pollution threats to Long Island Sound. So uh, can you... Uh, Tell me a little bit about what you learned from your time with Harbor Watch as well. Sure. Yeah. So as you said, Harbor Watch uh, works to improve the water quality and ecosystem health in Connecticut. They monitor rivers and streams in Fairfield County. And so what we do is they go out and they take at their field site the temperature, the dissolved oxygen or DO, and the conductivity of the site. And then they take a water sample, which has bacteria in it, and we can use this bacteria as an indicator of how the stream uh, is actually doing with its health. And if they find that a certain place has an elevated amount of this indicator bacteria, then they can do what's called a track down. And so they actually search for where the input of sewage pollution or a stormwater system or some sort of failing septic system is actually putting this bacteria into the water. And so they're able to address a lot of pollution threats to Long Island Sound. I interned with them in 2018, and they also have their summer 2021 internship coming up. <laughs> so you can go onto their site and check it out. Um, but what we did was we would go into the fields and collect these different parameters and the water samples, and then come back to the lab and analyze them. Um, and this is really important, again, for the health of Long Island Sound. All these streams are draining into Long Island Sound and bringing whatever is in them with it to Long Island Sound. And so it's important for public health as mm -hmm. well. Um, so I also worked with the Norwalk Public Health System, and I also did water quality testing of the beaches. And so we would take water samples of 21 different beaches, and we would analyze those in the lab as well. And then that would determine, to, based on how much bacteria, indicator again, bacteria was in the water, if the beach would remain open or if it would close the beach and retest it. And so again, this has really important impacts for not only our health, but also the health of the ecosystem, which does impact our health as well. Yeah, indeed. So in 2018, if the beaches were closed, that was your fault, huh? Saying, hey, you can't swim in here. Just the Norwalk <laughs> ones I was testing. <laughs> so that's interesting. So what do you do? Do you go out like in the early morning, like in the early a.m.? Like, you know, what time are, is the water tested? I'm just curious to know. Yeah, so we would typically go out based on the tides. Um, I also worked on something called a unified water study, and that had a more strict time frame with it. So we would have to go out within three hours of sunrise to collect these water quality parameters. And that was because when we were taking dissolved oxygen or DO, so just like we breathe oxygen in the air, there's oxygen in the water. 
And that's really important for different marine organisms that there's enough of that oxygen so they can breathe and they don't suffocate um, just like you know, a human would suffocate without air. Yeah. Um, and so dissolved oxygen will actually go up in its numbers when the sun comes out. And that is because that's when algae and different plants will photosynthesize. Um, so it raises the dissolved oxygen. And so with that study, we would have to go out again within the three hours of sunrise in order to collect the correct dissolved oxygen parameter that we wanted. Okay, I got you. So when you were talking, I was thinking about uh, all of the different creatures that are out in the ocean. So a lot of times uh, I know I've been out with the Project Oceanology and, uh, you know, have gone trolling. So did you have any experience trolling while you were working at Harbor Watch by chance? Yes. So on Fridays, we would go trawling. Um, We used a smaller A-frame trawl. And it was really my first experience ever working with marine organisms. So we would trawl, pull this trawl behind the boat for three minutes, and then we would pull it up and we would dig through it um, to count the organisms that were in there for a population study that's been going on for over 30 years. So it's really important to track the health of the ecosystem. So we would pull up all sorts of different things like pipefish and little sea squirts, Mm -hmm. um, sea robins and spider crabs. We had some blue crabs, which can be quite aggressive, (laughs) (laughs) but they're really, really beautiful. Um, And so we would pull up these different organisms and count them and then, of course, put them back. But it gave us a really good idea as to what was actually going on, especially with such a long-term data set. Um, In terms of other organisms that I've worked with, again, the white sharks, and these are actually really unique individuals. So white sharks, a lot of people think that they're pretty much all the same. They look exactly the same, and that's actually not true. One way that we can identify them from other sharks is based on that pigmentation color that they have. So we can use things such as the pigmentation on their gill slits or on their pelvic fins to identify an individual white shark. They also have a really unique dorsal fin. So again, that big fin that pretty much everyone is used to seeing, it's kind of that typical jaws fin that you would see coming out of the water. Um, They have those notches on the back and those are kind of like a fingerprint to the shark. And so those notches can be used to identify an individual white shark. But all animals, what's really interesting about them are all unique and really well adapted to their environment and what they do. Um, So they're quite beautiful and incredible to see. Um, you know, like we talked about, white sharks have a sixth sense, electroreception, you know, and so that's not something that we have and that we're used to. But these animals are all really well adapted to what they do and where they live. Yeah. And that's it is fascinating to see. And I did not know that, like, you know, um, one shark fin out of that water. I, you know, it's not like, oh, which shark is that? It's like I'm out of the water. right? But yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're all really unique. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's very interesting to know. And I know that uh, Jaws was way, you know, it was probably your mom uh, knew about the Jaws movie. But uh yeah, I have to say, only because I'm a Gen Xer, that when that movie came out when I was a kid, I was like petrified to go into the water after, after oh. seeing that. <laughs> a lot of people do, yeah, have questions about it because um, yeah. it is so well known. It was, you know, my first time seeing it was on a Cape Cod beach. Yeah. Um, and it was really amazing. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned the blue crabs, too, because, yes, they, they are feisty and aggressive. They are. Yeah, um, I grew up in the Philadelphia area and would travel down to Maryland and you know, blue crabs are the specialty down there, I hate to say, to eat as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
you know, seeing them in the, in the water, in their environment. I mean, they are so vibrant and they really yes. are so beautiful. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, for our friends that are listening, there are many programs that are available. If you'd like to try out research and say, participate in what's known as citizen science, right, Lauren? So for mm -hmm. example, I know that the Maritime Aquarium has a citizen science program where you can get involved in everything from terrapin trackers to frog watches. So you've taken part in this as well. Um, and I do love that you're plugging the internships that are available at all yes, the different yeah, organizations. Yeah. But uh, while I have you here, can you provide some details on the uh, citizen science program? I think you participated in that, right? Sure. So I worked um, as a citizen scientist with the Maritime Aquarium, and they have a horseshoe crab study that's been going on. And what's really unique about this program is that you actually get fieldwork experience. And so you can go out into the fields with them and you tag the horseshoe crabs. So horseshoe crabs are really, really old species, but their population hasn't been doing so well. So it's really important for the conservation of them that we actually track them. And how they do this is they take a horseshoe crab and they put a little tag in the side of it. Um, so if you're ever walking along the beach, I found two so far. Sometimes you'll see this little tag and it will say Limulus on it or Project Limulus. Limulus is a scientific name for the horseshoe crab. And it will either have a number or a website on it that you can call in. So sometimes it's still attached to the horseshoe crab. That's really great. You know, you can call in that uh, number and tell them that the horseshoe crab is still living. Or if it's dead, you'll give them information about it. But this is how they're able to collect data on the conservation of the horseshoe crabs. And so as a citizen scientist, you go out at night, horseshoe crabs mate at high tide, um, and they mate on particular days. And so you'll go out at night and there's all these horseshoe crabs on the beach and you tag them, you know, maybe a hundred horseshoe crabs. Um, and so it's really great experience you can get. They'll teach you how to hold the horseshoe crabs and how to handle them, um, let you tag the horseshoe crabs. But it's a really cool thing to do because then also later on, uh, you might find a horseshoe crab that you've tagged or that someone else has tagged. And if you do, they'll send you a little packet with a little horseshoe crab pin and tell you about where the horseshoe crab actually has been. Um, so it's a really great program. It's a great way to get involved and get some field work. Um, you know, one time I went out and we didn't find any horseshoe crabs at all. And that's OK as well, because it means they just weren't there yet. So everything that you do, you're able to learn a little something about the species that you're working with. Um, but I would definitely absolutely recommend checking out the Maritime Aquarium Horseshoe, Ta Horseshoe Crab Citizen Science Program. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, the horseshoe crabs, I mean, they've been around, they're like prehistoric almost, yes. aren't they? I mean, they've been yeah. around a long, long time. Yes. And uh, they are fascinating creatures only because they're so unique and do not look like anything else that's out there. Yeah, a lot of people think that they sting because they have that really long tail looking thing on them. Yeah. They actually don't sting. They don't bite. They don't really even pinch at all. Um, so they're really, really gentle. But people sometimes are afraid of them because they do look so different and they <laughs> are really old and prehistoric. Yeah. Um, but recently, we actually can thank them for a lot of different medical things. They use their blue blood for a lot of different medical purposes. Um, and they're also used as bait sometimes for whelk. And so it's really important that we support their population and understand the conservation of it. And this is just one way to do that. Yeah, I agree. And I also love that you said that if you see a tag on them, that you can actually, you know, contact 
you know, on there. We'll have the information. Is that it? it says that we'll have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I actually have one right here. Um, <laughs> I found this one with my sister on the beach. It was wrapped in a whole bunch of fishing reel. Of course, I kept it as yeah. a memo because I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it says report and release on it. Um, this one, of course, had a phone number and it has a tag number on it. So you can just call the phone number and you'll tell them that you found just the tag. So they'll ask a few questions about it again if, you know, if it was on a horseshoe crab, if the horseshoe crab is dead or alive. Um, if it is alive, you know, they might ask if it's male or female or if it's has any deformities or um, just really any information that you can give about it. But it's a really great thing to look for if you're walking along the beach. Yeah. And speaking of that, how would I know if a, I know uh, a blue crab, I can tell a male and a female. How do you tell the difference between a male and a female horseshoe crab? Yes, you have to flip it over Um, and it has these little, I don't want to call them pinchers, but that's probably what people would most think of if they looked at them. Um, And sometimes they look like a boxing glove. They're kind of more square. Mm. And if they're more square, it means it's a male. If they're a little bit more pointy, it's a female. Um, So it's not super prominent or easy to tell. You do have to flip it over. Um, It's never recommended to grab a horseshoe crab by the tail or anything. You can hold it from the side. Um, and flip it over that way. And you do always want to flip it back over as well, put it back where you found it. Excellent. Those are good points to know, because I have a feeling most people would think to pick it up by the tail, maybe. Yeah. And But you should pick it up by the side if you happen to see it. And if one's flipped over, you just flip it back so it can nestle itself back down into the sand, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Well, you know, I want to end every session of Blue Earth with a message of hope. So before we part today, Lauren, can you give our listeners your thoughts on our ocean's future? Absolutely. So with the research that I've worked on, I've really grown to understand how there are so many organizations and people and scientists and citizens working toward rebuilding our marine ecosystems. Um, In Cape Cod with the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, we saw the resurgence of a keystone species. So a lot of people think that the white sharks weren't there before, but they actually are native to the area. And because of policy that's been implemented, uh, we've seen the resurgence of this keystone species back to Cape Cod. And so there are so many ways that people can get involved with helping rebuild our marine ecosystems. And there's a lot that we've uncovered and discovered, um, whether it be you know beach replenishment or understanding shark movement patterns or learning a little bit more about horseshoe crab populations. But there's still a lot to discover as well. And there are so many opportunities for people out there to get involved, um, whether it be through your time or your skills or a lifestyle thing that you do. Uh, There's a lot out there, something for everyone. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Lauren. It's easy to lose sight of good news amid the barrage of negative stories, you know, about the threats facing our ocean and our world. However, like keeping in mind what you pointed out, there is a lot to celebrate especially when you look more closely at ocean-related developments. Um, Listeners like you, our ocean stewards, our citizen scientists are pushing for governments and industries to join forces for ocean solutions. A new view of our ocean and its importance to our species' survival are allowing production and protection to finally operate together. If there's a topic you would like for us to touch upon or a guest speaker you would like us to have on the show, please feel free to contact us at info at futurefrogmen.org or visit our website. Thank you, Lauren Burdell, for joining us today. And uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. Please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people 
and nature. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like what we're doing and want to check out more, you can find us on all social media at Future Frogmen or at our website, futurefrogmen.org. And remember, until next time, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.